Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 194 with my guest, Chrissy Bergmark. Chrissy uh, lives in Minnesota now, but studied at Northern Illinois University, um, where we have some some uh, shared friends and colleagues, and Cliff Alexis and Mia Gormandy and Yuko Asada. Um, and it was nice to get to catch up with Chrissy. It turns out she had seen a lot of early soap percussion shows uh, in Minnesota at the Southern Theater. And uh, it was just great to hear about her background. We talk about things like gender disparity in the field and her experiences coming up uh, and sort of what she's working on now. And it was it was great to get to know Chrissy. I always enjoy chatting with folks for the first time and getting to sort of start a relationship that way. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Without further ado, Chrissy Bergmark. Enjoy. Um, all right, let's gavel this to order. Chrissy Bergmark. Bergmark? <laughs> Bergmark, yep. Bergmark, okay, great. I'm always terrified yeah. about getting people's names wrong. It's like my... It's my it's my Achilles heel, so to speak. I I'm terrible with names, so I apologize for dwelling on it so much. But Chrissy Bergmark, thank you for for joining me today. Um, I'm always fascinated to get to know people um, kind of from scratch. And you mentioned in the Facebook message that we have crossed paths several times in various circumstances where you know you've either either seen so play or you know. And I know that you went to NIU, which is I, I didn't go there, but I have very close relationships with with Cliff and Liam and Yuko and Mia and all those folks who traveled through there. So yeah. um, I'm kind of curious. Before we get into it, what was it that you know? I put a sort of blanket thing on Facebook of like I'm tired of comment threads. <laughs> like, does do people want to talk? Like, what what was it? Why'd you reach out? Why do you want to talk? What do you want to talk about? And like, what? What prompted you to reach out? I'm always yeah. curious. So um, I will, I'll start at the beginning when mm-hmm. we first started crossing paths. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I went to a lot of so percussion shows, um, especially like at the end of my undergrad and like as I was getting ready to go to grad school. And I remember at one point, like I, I used to, to come up and ask like questions after the concert. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Um, when you all played at the Southern Theater, I think you played, is it the Stephen Mackey piece with like the quarter tuned pan? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. That was, that was years ago. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, was, it was a long time ago. And I remember like I was getting ready to move to Minneapolis for grad school and I went to this show and my mind was totally blown by this quarter tuned fan. And I remember I came up to you afterwards and asked you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. blah. And, and you were kind of, I think you were kind of like, um, oh, you know, I don't know if you said don't tell Cliff, but you were like, <laughs> you were kind of like, well, yeah, I don't know. I was trying to do this and trying to do that. And um, yeah. And I just remember like, through asking all of you different questions like after the mm-hmm. concerts and stuff I remember like walking around at PASIC and I'd see you all and I'd like see that you recognized me and I'd be like oh oh hey <laughs> and so I remember we just like kept crossing paths and um yeah and and so percussion was like so influential um especially around that time in my life just mm-hmm. like you know um seeing the path that that you all were taking in terms of like creating new music for percussion and mm. performing music for percussion. And, um, and yeah, you're a group that I really idolized and is really important to me still. Um, and so, uh, yeah, when I saw your Facebook post, I was like, yeah, let's chat. This sounds well, great. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying all that. Um, you know, it's, I think one of the things that I try, I'm trying like with my own students and like, well, before we get into that, where did you go to your undergrad and where did you go to grad school? 
So I went to my undergrad at Northern Illinois University. Okay, and then right. I went to um, grad school at University of Minnesota. And that is at, um, uh, crap, what's his name? The two, who, Fernando. Who, Fernando Mesa, that's right. Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. all right. Um, yeah, he's somebody that, you know, he and I have crossed paths in various... I, I was a student when I first met him, actually. I think he was giving a master class, or he came through the University of Akron, uh, which is where I did my undergrad. Um, so anyway, just, yeah, all these small worlds are colliding. But you know, I'm curious yeah. for you, like, you know, I talk to my students all the time, like, and they, they say similar things about, like, oh, I want to do what you're doing, or I think what you're doing is... You know, or they they look at what I'm doing or what So's doing and, and sort of think of it as something separate from like something they need to learn how to do. And I think sure. and I think to myself, like, I'm still learning how to do this. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, this isn't there's not any totally. so, any sort of like, especially for what we do, there's not like a path like there is in the orchestral world or the right. co- college teaching world. Like, what was some of the stuff for you as a student at the time, like running across different things. I mean, now you play tabla, you play steel drum, you do other things. Like what, what were some of the things going through your mind of like, what did the career field look like for you at that time? Like what, what were the possibilities for you at that time? I don't want to assume anything. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think at the time I, um, I was like deep in the world of like percussion, like, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're an undergrad music major percussion student, you're like, working on your grip and you're working on your snare drum rolls and you're like, you're doing it and you're really focused. And, um, so I was like deep in that. And I think I knew that like music was a really big part of, of me and, and, um, creating was a really big part of me, but I didn't exactly know what any path looked like. Mm. And I knew, I think at that point that, well, I did know at that point that I didn't want to be an orchestral musician. That just like, wasn't really my bag. Um, and I think the thing that really attracted me about like seeing groups like so percussion and seeing, um, yeah, just seeing that was like the, uh, like entrepreneurial, Mm. um, ideas that you all kind of used. And then, um, just like seeing like the creativity and the exploration. And I think like, you know, when you're an undergrad in percussion world, you get really wrapped up with like that kind of insular community Mm -hmm. that you Mm -hmm. have. Um, And I think that like, I had this inkling of like, okay, there's something like past this and I'm so wrapped up in this thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that is yet, but like I see this quartet of percussionists and they're like commissioning works. I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. They're like, uh, you know, finding new ways to like they're like you know as a percussionist you can choose your own instrument or rebuild an instrument or use anything you want as an instrument and um it was like i think like chasing the the exploratory and like playful nature and like chasing different sounds i was just like this is this is something like Mm -hmm. this is something Mm -hmm. i want to do and this is something i want to get to and i think like especially at that time i was like looking for a lot of like paths and a lot of like examples to map what my path would eventually be Hmm. like against that. It's not so different than, I mean, honestly, the things you're saying are the same exact conversations that, you know, I've had in minivans with Jason, Adam and Eric for 15 years now, like this sort of like, there's something beyond this. Like even, even we look at ourselves, like there's something, what are we not doing? What, well, there's lots of things we're not doing. 
just as people, like you have to wake up every day. I made a choice to do a podcast with you today. I could be commissioning works. I could be doing other things. Like, <laughs> like so yeah. um, one of the things that for me as a student always bothered me about school was that like, it seems like school or the idea of, of schooling, you kind of, there's like a natural sort of set of handcuffs that you have to put on it. Otherwise, yeah, it can be this, like, just come and hang out in this very expensive building for four years and do whatever you want. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm very curious now as a teacher, like, how do you make it, how do you treat music like a vocational school? Like, like it, yeah, I grew up, there was, a, there was a high school called Buckeye Joint Vocational High School. And at the time, it was like, I'm just going to paint with a broad brush here. This was where the kids who couldn't pass math class went. Like, this is the kid who, okay. the kids who, like, didn't want to be in school. This, These were the flunkies, you know? Like, yeah, they're all the kids working right now, rebuilding engines. And, like, like to me, and so now as a 41-year-old, I look back and I think, I was not completely viewing that with a healthy outlook. Like, if we treated music similarly, where, like, well, I don't know. I don't have a good question here, but I feel like there's a – we're treating artists, trying to teach artists how to do something quantitative when most of what we do is qualitative. Like there's a subjective nature to it. And Yeah, absolutely. And that's like something that I – when I meet people who are, you know, have nothing to do with my profession and they're like, oh, what do you do? And what was it like for you to go to school? And I'm like, well, it was like – pretty expensive trade school is what it amounts mm, to mm-hmm. is it's like you know you're like you're kind of learning how to do the thing but you're taught i think in music school though you're taught all of these um like yeah these like skills and these handcuffs and like sometimes that can feel like some hoop jumping too mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't end up being it's like the first half of trade school you know you're not taught like all of the skills you're only taught some of the skills and then the rest of it you kind of have to like search out and find i think well it's like yeah. Yes. Okay. You're helping me drill down a little bit on this. It's like <laughs> going to study surgery, but you only ever read about cutting heads open. Yeah. You know, like you can play Porgy and Bess until you're blue in the face. Mm-hmm. But once you put it with the violins and there's a conductor showing, all of a sudden it's not like those accents are now none of them are on the downbeat. Right. You know, and it feels and it swings differently. And so like, that's the difference. It's like you can... I remember I didn't I've never had to play porgy with an orchestra but I've I've played some pieces that were excerpt based and it's I could imagine like I don't know every surgeon every brain surgeon has to cut open that first head everybody has the first like <laughs> oh my god this is a human oh my god all these beeping sounds oh my god like you cut right. it and blood shoots everywhere and you have to learn how to figure it out like that's yeah. The thing I think with school that bothered me the most bother always bothered me the most was like you worked for 3 months you did one performance Right. Like, what if blood shot all over me on that one performance? Am I just like, now I'm a bad surgeon? Yeah. And sometimes it did. <laughs> yeah. But this is the like, thing. Like, yeah. You know, as a student or as a teacher now, I'm trying to constantly tell my students, like, you got to get out. You got to play for people. You got to, you know, set up a concert in the studio and just run through everything as if it's a show because it's important to know what that live fire is like, you know, there's that Mike, Mike Tyson has a famous quote called everybody or everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Like, you know, like it's, (laughs) you could, you could do the shadow boxing and all that stuff, but then you get clocked in the face by Mike Tyson. You're like, everything's all your training's gone, you know? And I I feel like as a musician, that's, and I think that's the thing that 
what you see in soap percussion sometimes is like we the the sort of privilege that we have is that I do get to play pieces more than once. Like that's what students are seeing isn't anything different than them other than I've played it is time like 50 times, you know, like that's the crucial distinction, you know? And so how do we make school into something where you can't get out unless you play two Mexican dances 50 times? Like you have to play, you have to have choked down those horrible performances as a student, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, let me, yeah. Let me ask you, like, as a student, one of the other things, too, I'm always curious about, um, and it's been something that's it's something that's in the sort of social uh, discussions right now is gender equality and stuff in in percussion in particular. And pardon if pardon me if any of these questions sound like rude or just blunt or insensitive, but like when I was a student, there were three girls in a percussion studio of, of 25, mm-hmm. and there wasn't. I don't remember there being any. Like, it was this weird big family, and every they were my sisters, these were my brothers, like, it was a thing, right? Yeah. It's now dawning on me as a 41-year-old looking back and hearing some of the discussions from female students about what it feels like to be one of three in a percussion studio at 25 and, like, all of those things. And I'm now sort of, like, feeling like I need to message, you know, Lisa and, and my friends from, from undergrad and be like, is there anything I owe you beer over? Like me just being a yeah. jerk, a jerk in, in studio class or like, is there anything, you know, anyway, so I'm just kind of curious from your standpoint, what, how has the sort of that portfolio of like gender equality, how has that shifted in good ways or bad ways over the sort of your time through school? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, well, <laughs> first of all, I, I feel like I can hold, um, like both sides of that at once and like equally like I feel the same way in terms of like yeah that was my family you Mm -hmm. know like my percussion studio was um they were like my best friends that I was playing music with all of the time and I'm like really grateful for that experience Mm -hmm. um and I felt uh often like people who were on my side and on my team um and you know friends with me were were showing up that way most of the time and like yeah every once in a while like people have disagreements or arguments or things mm-hmm. that they go through um but then on the other side of that uh at every level of schooling I've ever had there's always been a guy who's been like uh you know like giving me um like weirdly competitive vibes you know and it's like uh like what give me an example like oh i remember and you don't have uh, to name names but yeah yeah totally um like we would start chatting and get to know each other and i think maybe like um there wasn't i don't think it was my perception that there wasn't a whole lot of like awareness emotional awareness on their side of Mm -hmm. maybe why they were um, feeling whatever they were feeling towards me. But it was always like, you know, we would make friends and things would be good for a while. And then like all of a sudden things would kind of turn and there would be like eye contact avoided or they'd get like competitive or they'd get like, I like moody, I guess is like a way to describe it. But, um, and that, you know, that was like one person. At like an insecurity club. thing or, or it manifested think- in, in some sort of like, like, inappropriate comments or just like or was it just like they were like she's too good 
<laughs> you know, like stuff like that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it was more of like, um, like an I I don't want to talk to you. Like I feel a competition towards mm. you, and like I'm just gonna go do my own thing and like whatever, and just like more of an attitude than like inappropriate comments. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, inappropriate comments weren't. Yeah, that wasn't really a thing for me so much. And I know other people have had different experiences, mm-hmm. but um, there's always just been like to some degree like, oh, why is this why is this person acting that way towards me? Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. strange and concerning, you know. Um, but yeah, and it was always yeah, it, it was dealt with, I think, at every level of, of schooling that I've had. And I think now um, we're having much more honest conversations about mm-hmm. it like right now. <laughs> well, um, and I, I'm like so appreciative of that. And I think, um, to some extent that, um, they're like, that's, that's not just like a, a male, female girls, guys dichotomy either. Um, and I think to some extent, like I was watching, um, a bit of this podcast, uh, the other day called, I think it's called the happy musician. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were interviewing Rachel Taylor, who's another NIU grad. Mm. And she was talking about this moment where she um, was watching somebody perform. And she was like, uh, and it was like another female student. And she's like, I, I didn't want them to fail, but I didn't really want them to succeed. And that thought like freaked me Mm. out. And I was like, yeah, I've had that where it's like, you feel this like competition, you know? And it's like, Oh my gosh, like what is that in me that's like, you I'm know, a- I feel like I have to be the the only one in this in this group, you know, like the only girl who can do it. And I think that like, you know, that internalized misogyny is an issue too of like, you know, um women not showing up for other women all the time either. And I don't think mm-hmm. that's the case, you know, all the time, but I think it it's something that crops up and it's something like to look at it in terms of like the stories that we've told ourselves over the years and like also like what we've seen over the years in terms of like percussion like um there yeah there's just there wasn't a lot of of women and now there's like more and more that are being given a voice and bought, brought to the forefront mm-hmm. of like here is a musician and someone I can model my path after and I think that is like so important and addressing like that discomfort and that like um that yeah that sense of like insecurity and like why is that there like what have I told myself about like um this this narrative of who I am and how I'm showing up you know in a in a group of friends or musically or or in my career well as you were talking about the the that podcast uh, Rachel Taylor is that her name excuse me yeah yeah um, you know uh, her saying that is, an, I mean, it's very vulnerable of her to be, and it's very, it's, you know, honest and genuine. But as you're saying, I was just like, listen, uh, you know, Third Coast Percussion played on the Grammys a couple years ago. And if you think for a second that I wasn't at home being like, come on, <laughs> shit the bed, fellas, come on, you can do it. Like, <laughs> like yeah, I want to totally. see this plane fly into the mountain on the Grammy. And I'm just like, I don't actually believe that. Right, but that's the right. sort of like crabs in a barrel um, mentality. I mean, I've heard I've heard that that term crabs in a barrel. I, I first heard it from the like Caribbean community that I work with in, in New York a lot in in the steel band world. Yeah, and there's a lot of you know friends of mine will talk about the sort of competitive nature. Like you want to you want the whole community wants to be 
more present, more seen. But as soon as one person is, there is this natural infighting and it happens like men against men, women against women. And so like, to me, I'm curious how to like, like you called it misogyny or that sort of ingrained misogyny, misogyny when it's a man towards a woman, but those same exact feelings between me and third coast, like, is that misogyny or is that just me being insecure and being like, why am I not on that stage? You know, like that's totally, that's just my lizard brain talking. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated too. Cause I think some of that is like, Oh, I'm the only, you know, I'm one of two or three girls in the studio Mm -hmm. and I want to, I want to like really do it and be like, like, the the best of the girls i guess i don't know there's you know there's like all kinds of of complicated like feelings that you have um or that i have had i think like revolves around that um and some of that is just like straight up like competition Mm -hmm. um and some of it i think can be healthy and some of it i think is not so healthy but Mm. i think it's like you know important to hold both like the the unhealthy stuff and the healthy stuff and the complicated stuff and like the very base instinct stuff and be like, where is this coming from? And how is this maybe like showing up in the way that I show up for other people in my community? Yeah. Well, let me, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about Cliff because Cliff is somebody for whom in my life he is, I don't want to assume how he's affected your life, but his his sort of presence in my life singularly um, changed my life's trajectory in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't even like as soon as you take Cliff out of my life, like almost everything goes away, you know. And yeah. one of the th- one of the things about Cliff that always struck me uh, was that he was very uh, to a point, kind of overprotective of female students that like wanted to go to Trinidad and wanted to be, do those things. And it was almost like Yuko sometimes would be like cliff, like chill out. She's fine. You know, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I'm curious, like in the steel band world, um, I have, I have sensed this, uh, equality isn't the word, but there's like, there's definitely sort of like gender hierarchies in the, in the pan world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just calling balls and strikes. I'm not saying there's a, there's no value judgment here, but like, Men hold different sway in pans pan yards than women do, mm-hmm. but some of the best players and most important sections in the band are run by women. The bass sections, for the most part, in my experience, have been dominated by women, and mm-hmm. there's entire panoramas written about women on the bass, and like it's this weird sort of like it's an ecosystem that's that is sort of functions differently than I think the new music world that I'm in on a daily basis in terms of how that stuff is dealt with. And I'm just kind of curious for you, like what, what have been your experiences in the, in the pan world? And is, is anything I'm saying, like there's a weird acceptance, but also this sort of understood, like historical relationships between men and women in this culture and like how everybody talks and intertwines. And I'm just kind of curious, like what have you identified or have you identified anything in that community that, that speaks to some of the issues we're talking about or not. I mean, I, I led with the cliff being yeah. overprotective because like that is a type of misogyny, but in this weird sort of like, he wants to protect, like he cares about you and he's just like, I know where you want to go and I'm going to put you in my pocket and feed you Triscuits and make sure that you come home safe. Like that's, that's, <laughs> you know, but the, yeah. but again, that can be sort of overbearing in another way and not like let you be a person who is, has agency in the world, you know, like I'm kind of yeah, curious for yeah. you, like does any of that resonate? 
Yeah. Um, I can't speak so much to um, the pan world necessarily. I, you know, I played in steel band all four years in undergrad. Mm-hmm. And then um, I ran steel band at the University of Minnesota in mm-hmm. grad school for a little while. But beyond um, like my experiences at NIU, um, and then I played it with a group here in the Twin Cities, the Panhandlers, a little bit. But mm-hmm. I've never been to Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like um, in terms of like that, that entire community, I don't I don't have a lot of like uh, good insight on that. But I do well, have insight. The, in, NIU as com- far as- the NIU community is very diverse from what I like. Every time I see pictures, I'm like, that's a pretty solid representation yeah. across the board, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my experiences with Cliff were, uh, yeah, I, what you're saying definitely resonates with me in terms of like, I would come to Steel Band every day and whether I was having an absolute uh, shit time mm-hmm. <laughs> or an amazing time. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> I don't care. Okay. Yeah. I don't edit these, so um, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, whether I was having a shit time or an amazing time, um, Cliff was there and I mm. knew that he was looking out for me. Like when mm. I first started playing tabla, it was like my sophomore year. Um, and I remember like throughout my undergraduate experience, I remember being in a million ensembles, uh, never feeling like I had enough time to practice. And then practicing for like a good chunk on like a Saturday. And then by the end of my practice session, I would still feel terrible because that's not a very productive practice session mm-hmm. when you haven't practiced enough all week. And then you, you know, load it onto your Saturday. Um, and I remember just like showing up to all of my ensembles, just tired and not having prepared enough. And like, like everything I was doing was half-assed because I was doing way too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like Cliff seeing that in me, mm. especially my sophomore year, which was like a really hard year for me. And, and um, he, I don't, I don't even remember exactly what he said, but I remember like I would come in to rehearsal and, and he would say like, um, you know, like I, like I, I see you basically. And I was like, okay, okay. Mm. And it was just like knowing that he saw that and he was mm. like, I can see that you're suffering. I can see what's going on here. I was like, okay. It's like, it's nice to be seen. And um, and I felt that like love from him and like care for all of his students. It's like mm. we were we were his like clan and his community. And I think like being a part of that and showing up to that however you were and just like, you know, digging in and, and doing whatever you could, um, was really that like definitely shaped, um, a lot of my experience in undergrad. And that was like what I took out of that ensemble was like, we were this community and, and you showed up, um, every day at, was it at three o'clock? I think it was at three o'clock, three to four o'clock. And you did not miss rehearsal for anything. And Mm. you, you showed up and you, you did your stuff, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And I think, no, sorry, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, yeah, and I think like having having that like consistent of a community throughout my undergrad, which was like, yeah, there was definitely like really hard times, and then times where I felt like, okay, I'm getting this, like things are starting to happen and click for me was was really powerful, and and it that was because of like the tone that Cliff set and the mm. tone that Liam set too. Yeah, I mean, when I one of the things that. I think I'm struggling with right now in, in sort of um, 
our our culture, our generation. I mean, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I am 32. Okay, so I'm 41. We're not that – we're nine years different. It's not that crazy of a mm-hmm. difference. Like, one of the things I'm struggling with a little bit in terms of how our culture is dealing with what community means and looks like is the sort of um, – inability or intolerance of any sort of deviation from a belief system or a, you know, something counter to the the sort of toe the line, right? Like, or you're going to get called out publicly for something you did or didn't do. And then you have to answer for it publicly. And I think one of, I get it. I understand the desire behind it to try to make things better, to try to like their social commentary and critique that's happening. I, I don't see a whole lot of communities forming out of that methodology in the way that I was taught by Cliff. I met Cliff when I was like 16. At, he came yeah. to Dover, Ohio. And the first thing he did was show me two scars on the back of his head and talk to me one-on-one about what they were. Like he didn't make a big like show about it, yeah. you know? And like when you were talking about like he sees you, like Cliff is somebody for whom like his suffering radar because of the experiences he had growing up in Trinidad is finely tuned, way more finely tuned than I think most people's are. And Cliff was always somebody who dealt with things privately, at least with me. Like yeah. he, he wanted you on the team and he was willing to accept you for, but there were some lines. If you cross the line, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. But Cliff never made like a public. Uh, sort of like I'm going to go out of my way to like tell everybody about this person. Like it was just, it was more complicated. And I feel like I'm just kind of curious for you, like, like Cliff was on social media, but he was not the things he said to me privately, he would never say publicly on social media that much I can say. And I'm kind of curious for you, like when Cliff passed, I had this like deep anxiety of like, Oh no, like, we lost a big community builder, like somebody who, because of the tone he sets, like, and yeah. I think like if, I don't know, I'm just kind of curious, like I, I have a little bit of despair about our ability as a, as a social media driven music community to sort of create the same environment that somebody like Cliff creates in, in person. Um, right. I'm asking, maybe it's not even possible. Like, is it possible to create or allow for complexity um, in these spaces? And create a similar well, environment. Yeah, yeah. I think um, when I think about community and like um, Cliff's impact and his radar and like what it what it was for me at that time, mm-hmm. I think about like the size of the community, mm-hmm. which was like thirty people, mm-hmm. forty people, fifty people. Yeah. You know, within the context of the the larger school of music. You know, it w- it just wasn't that it wasn't that huge of a group, you know. And so I think like having that um, contact every day was meaningful, and like having the ritual of like coming together and doing something together and mm-hmm. having a common goal is like those are all things that are just non-existent from the like quote unquote community of social media or musicians in social media, and it's just too big. It's too mm-hmm. big, um, and so I think like. I think, okay, well, I should preface this by saying that I am a hopeless optimist. So <laughs> Good. That's why I wanted to talk to you because I'm not. And, it's fine. 
Yeah, I'm like, it gets I, I, me into trouble because I'm just like, no, it's, it can happen. We yeah. can make it happen. And I like, you know, yeah, the I fav- get, I get hooked onto things that it's just like, oh, come on. What I was talking, the best thing I heard about optimism versus pessimism um, was like, I'm not a half, I think my favorite, I'm not a half glasses, half empty or glasses, half full sort of guy. I'm the glasses twice as big as it needs to be sort of guy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, let's just get a smaller glass. Then it's, then we're good. Like, right. you know, so anyway, um, continue. Sorry. You're a hopeless yeah, optimist. Yeah. Um, no, I'm definitely a hopeless optimist. Um, and I think I can see the ways in which, you know, we can choose to create our own community, but mm-hmm. I do think it's like a choice for everybody. And I think that, um, social media is a useful tool, but I think people have like the issue with it is that people have tried to find community Mm. within social media like purely through social media whereas I think like it helps me to stay in contact with people that I know personally and have met and have like some sort of a connection to and we can kind of like maintain that connection through social media but in terms of like you know racking up followers and having Mm -hmm. thousands and millions of people see your videos it's just like this is not sustainable or viable or going to make anybody feel good. This is not a model for community. Well, especially when the one of the things that I feel is different is the call out culture sort of vibe on social media where you can, you can sort of do drive by activism and be like, this is terrible. You're a piece of shit. And then you can just go and get your matcha latte and not think twice about what you just did. You know, And, And the sort of ecosystem that somebody like Cliff, and I don't, I don't mean to like harp on Cliff as like, the end all to end all to community building. I mean, there's millions, ver- millions of different versions of healthy communities, but right. um, the one thing when, you know, when Cliff walks in the room and sees you and notices you, there's something that's, that goes unsaid there where he's like, I see you. So just know that you're being seen. And then you by default have to think more about your actions because you know, Cliff is watching and Cliff right. is sort of like a tribal elder. And yeah. like, it doesn't matter what your feelings are in that moment. He respects them, but your job in that moment is to play your panorama part right. You know, like, right. there's a little, like, he doesn't say the thing which goes unsaid, which is like, I know you got some shit today, mm-hmm. Chrissy. And I know you want to, <laughs> I know that you want to punch this person in the face and you think this person is an asshole. Yeah. I don't care. Take mm-hmm. it up with me later. I got you. But you're playing a C sharp. It should be C natural. Like, that's the thing that, like, I yes. feel you can't do on social media. And so it becomes this space where all of a sudden Chrissy is allowed to be like, I'm in a bad mood. Therefore, you're a bad person. Or I th- I'm seeing this. My feelings about you are this. But they're not. They're, they're based on my own personal trauma that has nothing to do with you. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. and there's nobody well, keeping any of that in check. And I feel like that's what, you know, Cliff, I'm not saying everybody, there needs to be like a social social media tribal elder who just says you shut up you know like i don't think that's healthy either but it's just messy well and when i think about like the way that cliff did that um i think that he's he's giving you the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. you know and like seeing you and like seeing you with um like grace and compassion as a complex human, you know, and, and he's doing all of that just by being like, Hey, you know, <laughs> um, but I think that 
I think that we have a choice to do that on social media. I just think it's way, way, way easier to go the opposite way. I think it takes more time and more energy and more love for people that you do not know Mm. and maybe don't even care to know really when it comes down to it um, to extend that compassion and say like, hey, I see that you're you know, like wrestling with this or you, you said this thing. It sounds like that's coming from a place of anger. Um, like, can you t- tell me more about that? Because really, everybody just wants to be seen. Mm-hmm. But it's way easier to say like, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. And because we're all hiding behind the screen and there's no like face-to-face consequences. So yeah. I think it's possible. Again, hopeless optimist. But uh, yeah, but it's it's just easier to do the other thing. Well, it's why I put out the note initially that connected us here it was because i it's it's shocking to me and again like i my anxiety about getting called out because of where i am in the community and what i do or don't do well like i have it it's not i i shouldn't dwell on it but i do um i i just wish like i wish there was a sound like the what's the the trini they call it stooping like the sucking air through your teeth is like oh, a, yeah. is like a sign of like like if you said something to cliff and he didn't agree with you but he wasn't gonna like it just wasn't worth his time to crawl up your ass about it he'd be just like <laughs> and he'd walk away it's like i wish there yeah. was that button on facebook where we could just click the sh- the stoops button or whatever and and like it would make that sound when you opened up your feed like <laughs> it's yes. not a call oh out gosh, but it's, be amazing. it's just the sort of like yeah, whatever. Sound. Yeah, like I, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, let me ask you. I mean, since you know, uh, I, I appreciate you talking about Cliff. It always just I could talk about Cliff every podcast, and I feel like I'd never get to the bottom of him. But um, Tabla is another sort of sliver. If like if the the loaf of percussion music was all these different slice or music was all these different slices, Tabla is a slice that is kind of like the third rail of percussion music where one of the third rails not not in any sort of bad way but just sort of like you touch that one you realize how much fucking work you have to do like <laughs> there are people yeah. it's like you know and the the guiro is the same way as soon as you see, see somebody in venezuela playing the guiro you're like oh what am i yeah. doing with my life but top <laughs> top is something you can't really like where I can learn a couple patterns and be somebody, you know, I think he knows what a three, two clave is or whatever, you know, right. Tabla, you can't really fake it. It's such yeah. a specific and culturally based, like there are people who spend years just with the syllables before they even touch a drum. And right. I'm, I'm kind of curious for you, what, how has that sort of cultural dipping your toe in that cultural pool? How has that sort of, um, what has been similar to the pan world that you've, you've had with Cliff and Liam and what has been different mm-hmm. for you? Um, and if you want to talk about the differences in gender too, I'm, I'm just curious if, if that culture, how they see these sort of relationships as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when I first started playing tabla, my sophomore year, um, I started out in Robert Chappell's mm-hmm. tabla class, just mm-hmm. like doing it. And, um, like I was saying, like my, my, that second year of, of undergrad was like really tough. And that whole next summer, all I did was practice tabla and watch videos of Zakir Hussein and nap. I didn't see any of my <laughs> friends. I didn't go out. I was just like, I am healing. This is my cocoon. Mm-hmm. This is where I exist now. Um, and then I got a lot better at it. And I think, um, maybe part of the reason that that instrument like resonated with me so much at that time was because 
I had put so much expectation on what I was supposed to know mm. as a percussionist. And, you know, like we're, we're constantly trying to like, um, you know, like juggle all of the skills that we need to know, like your four mallet marimba, your snare drum rolls, your, you know, excerpts, your timpani, like everything. And I think I felt just, I like took that pressure on and I took it so hard when I couldn't mm. handle all of it and juggle all of it the ways I wanted to. And so I think when I sat down to play tabla, I was like, no one expects anything from me on this instrument. Like this is, I'm a beginner. I'm like truly a mm. beginner. Mm. It's so deep. I feel like I'm just like, I just, yeah, literally putting my toe in the ocean and then realizing like how massive the ocean was. And so I think like there was a certain amount of freedom in that for me. And mm. so, um, I kept playing and I also like really, you know, we're playing with like implements all the time. I really loved being able to touch my instrument, like mm. that physical mm -hmm. contact. I was like, Oh, like I'm making this connection. I see what's happening and I can like feel the resonance of my instrument kind of in a different way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of dove into that. And then like I wrote um, an undergraduate grant to go to Mumbai the next summer. Mm. And I got that and I went to go study with um, Pandit Yogesh Samsi, who's like still my teacher that I study with. He's mm -hmm. he, it's like, yeah, absolutely incredible player. Like mm. and and someone who is just like has dug so deep, not only into like the tradition as it like currently exists today, but like kind of his, um, his like calling card is taking these like old, um, like Punjab Garana, which is like the style of playing compositions and like bringing them back to life. Mm. Um, and his playing is just like, so like buttery and expressive and brilliant that it's just like your face is immediately melted you know like it's i mean tabla, seeing... tabla playing i mean it's one of the uh, i've seen uh, zakir hussein so did a thing with zakir hussein years ago before i joined the group and then i went to see silk road ensemble at zankel hall uh in new york with uh sandeep das i believe was the guest artist and yeah and then growing up listening to ravi shankar and alaraka like there's something i always yeah. i look at you know, tabla playing, like good tabla players, it sort of is like looking at like manga cartoons or something. Like you're like, you're, the, the, you all are, are like an octopus or something. You're like, you are not like any other species of animal on this planet. Like there's something about the tabla that feels like it, it like fell off a meteor or something like 2000 <laughs> years ago and landed yeah. in India. And it was like that. They're just like, well, this is what we're doing. You know, I know that's totally not, not all the case, but it's such a specific skill set where like most other drummers drumming practices are visceral. Like you have a, like there's a full body thing. And I look at tabla players and I think like, you don't even need your body. You just need these things right here. And you can do like this. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of nuts. Like what, what in terms of the te yeah. the the teaching like is the rote teaching or I don't want to assume it's rote is the style of teaching with your teacher in India and by how is stuff sort of disseminated back and forth between the two of you does he just play for you and then you replicate it or um well he will usually what happens in a lesson is I first of all I have to record the whole lesson mm -hmm. um because I just don't have that like auditory retention. Mm -hmm. I'm like definitely a visual learner and like I didn't grow up learning like that, you know, like you, you would in that culture. 
Um, and so I record my lesson and he'll speak the syllables to me. Mm-hmm. So he'll say like, and then he'll say, okay, now you. And then I go, and then once I can recite, like there's a lot of theme and variation, especially in like the early compositions that you learn. Mm-hmm. And so we'll do that with the theme and then we'll do that with each one of the variations. And then once I recite it, then I play it. Um, he doesn't even have drums in some of our lessons. He's just reciting and just telling me mm. through the like the bowls, which is the tablet language, like what to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And then I would take it back with me, listen to the recording, write it all down so that I could see it. Um, and then like highlight where some of like the downbeats are to mm. understand like how it would fit. Uh, and then I would just, rep it over and over again until it felt comfortable <laughs> and is there any but, what are, are there any sort of um like in trinidad I, I i always feel bad because i keep bringing it back to trinidad but like in trinidad i'm when i go down there like i've built up enough trust with people that i know there, people i've worked mm-hmm. with and played with or studied with like but i'm still a foreigner i mean for the obvious reasons yeah. like I'm, i stick out like a sore thumb down there anyway yeah. but like even Kendall Williams, who is of Trinidadian descent, when he goes there, he's a foreigner, <laughs> you know, and he's arranged yeah. for big bands and all that stuff down there. Um, right. But for you, like, what what are the cultural? Are there any sort of like things that are very clear in terms of the boundaries of like what a foreigner does or doesn't do within this music? Like, how is that stuff talked about at all, or is it just sort of generously sort of disseminated? Um. Yeah, I think. There is, um, well, and okay, I guess something that I struggle with too, and this is like an interesting um, conversation to have with you, because I think you can probably relate in playing Pan, is that like, um, you know, you can, you can like, I, I guess I sit as a, as a player in this space between like, okay, I'm like digging in what I practice, like, you know, 80 to 90% of my practice is like, working on my traditional rep Mm -hmm. and just like digging into that, digging into the culture, digging into my sounds. Um, And then, but then I also like have this uh, other set of skills, which is that of like, you know, not such a beginner as a musician Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) having Mm -hmm. like, you know, gone to school for it. And so I think like that's really where I've kind of like, found myself in terms of like being a player is like I'm I'm a professional musician but I don't at all feel like a professional table player because mm-hmm. I'm still just like mm-hmm. you know I've got maybe a foot in now into the ocean <laughs> yeah. instead of just a toe and so it's really interesting because I think um I think there is you know like when you look at the garanas historically there's like all these different styles of table playing. There's like a handful of styles of table playing um, that are specific to each region. And historically, those were like heavily guarded secrets. Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh, you know, your uh, if you were a guru, your disciples were like either um, your, you know, like direct, like your son, or um, it was like somebody in your family, mm-hmm. you know? And so then like, I think, you know, with the internet and globalization and like information moving around so much these days 
that has like absolutely like loosened and opened up. And now there's just like more people playing tabla, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's something that I struggle with too, because I feel like I, I show up and, and um, so like after I started playing tabla, I went to grad school for percussion. When I got out of grad school, I was like, this is my instrument. Like, this is really what I want to do. And I started digging in and then I started kind of like building, um, like trying to figure out how to build a life basically. And I like started a percussion group called Matra and it was like marimba and vibraphone and tabla and drum set. And we added a bass player later and I was still just like, you know, a beginner and trying to kind of like learn how to take this instrument that doesn't have so much a place in like the music that I knew and that I felt like was home to me, which was percussion music and trying to figure out how to apply that. And so I did like a lot of growing up, I think as a musician and as a tablet player, like through that group. Um, and then now I'm kind of at a spot where it's like, sometimes I think about like what other tablet players think about my playing. And mm. sometimes I have no idea. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, Oh, there's, I think there's like, um, there's like a pretty big difference in like, like, I think they would think I play slower cause I absolutely do. I've always wished I had faster hands, mm -hmm. something I'm always working on. Mm. Um, and I think they would think that like, you know, my, my low drum, like I let resonate for too long, but that's also like part of what I feel like fits into the music that I end up playing on that instrument. So um, and then sometimes it like swings back to the more like traditional rap. But in terms of uh, like that scene and culturally, it's hard. It's hard for me to tell sometimes. Well, like, have you talked to have you talked to your teacher about like, have you showed your teacher any of the stuff that you're working on? That's not directly tied to the traditional stuff that he's doing. Um, a little bit. I know that he's seen some of my things online and he hasn't, he hasn't said like too much about it. We've mostly just, you know, like work on the things that we work on, but that, I mean, that's a good idea. Maybe that would be a good well, idea to have that conversation. It's one of the things I wish I would have asked Cliff more about is Cliff, yeah. what do you, what should I be doing? What can I, what could I be doing better about my approach to pan playing? Like right. my, I mean, you mentioned up front about like, Oh, don't tell Cliff about the microtonal pan, you know, like yeah. <laughs> that's, it's only just out of, well, it, it, the reason I might have joked about that was just out of a, like just an, a reverence and awe for what I mean, Cliff was one of the, I mean, it's like him and Ellie Manette and there's like three other people who invented the instrument for God's sakes, you know, like, and right. Cliff and Ellie were sort of responsible for disseminating it in the United States. Like there's a lot of like, like reverence I have to give. And the yeah. idea that he might have not liked something I, I did was important to me. Um, but yeah. Cliff, Cliff was always one who, that's why I asked, like, I'm curious what your teacher thinks because Cliff, even if Cliff didn't like it, I remember him coming to a so percussion masterclass and we played some pan and I was like, and, and, and I was like, and one of my biggest mentors, Cliff Alexis. And I pointed him, we were in a big gymnasium. It was like a symposium, thing that everybody in the school had to come to. I was like, Cliff, I just cannot thank you enough for everything. I, I motioned over to him and he was out like a light, just sleeping, snoring in the front row. <laughs> and I just was like, moving on, you know, like, and, yeah. and but <laughs> awesome. to me, I feel like Cliff was like, all right, he's supporting pan. Mm -hmm. I don't like microtonal pan. But okay. Like, I think that's what Cliff would have said. 
Sure. And yeah. Like I'm curious. I don't know. There, there was a little bit of generosity with, the, and I think Trinidadians too are very experimental with a lot of different sort of types. There's, a, it's a big mishmash of a different, many different diasporas of music that, like, experimentation in Trinidad has been a big thing. But in the tabla world, I don't, I don't know if that's a similar thing. I'm curious what the like. Do people? Do, does your teacher do like? weird experimental tabla do people put contact mics on tabla and run them through pitch shifters and like stuff like that is that is that type of practice common in india or is it like straight down the pike you got to learn the, the the regular stuff it's i mean in my experience is pretty straight down the pike mm-hmm. and there's like i i guess i would say that there's like a couple different kinds in terms of like you're either learning traditional stuff or you're learning like filmy music like bollywood mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. and like working on your grooves um but yeah, in terms of like experimental stuff, like Zakir is the guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's he's who who does that kind of stuff. And I think like there's um and like his student Sufala, uh she does I would say like more experimental stuff um with tabla in terms of like miking and playing along to like some electronic music, mm-hmm. but um there's there's not a lot of it at all. Like mm-hmm. I think culturally it's pretty like yeah straight down the pike and so yeah i think my feelings towards that have just been like okay like i'm gonna go to my lesson and like learn what i can and then like i'm kind of you know trying to do this thing over here but just like yeah it's that same kind of like okay i'm just like i'm gonna do my best in trying to understand like this tradition and really like sink in as much as i can but yeah i I guess i haven't ever really thought to like um bring that to my teacher so much because i'm kind of just like well you probably won't think like much of this and it's like, you know, just what I'm trying to do. But, you know, sometimes maybe that's I mean, sometimes I, I I've seen it go both ways. I Sometimes if, if you have a good relationship with your teacher, I think it's going to go the good way, yeah. which is he may say like, oh, I don't I have no idea what you're doing here, but seems great. You know, or he could say, yeah. I notice you're letting your low drum ring a lot. Why? And you'll say, oh, well, it's because of this. And he'll say oh, well, what if you let your hydring drum ring a lot on this thing, you know, or whatever, like sure. there may, he may just be like, yeah, let's get in and till the soil a bit and see what, see what comes of it. Um, yeah. You know, just in terms of like, I think it's important for me that it doesn't mean that you, you should stop experimenting, but if he's like, I'd be curious. Cause if he does all of a sudden is like, wait a minute, you know, I, I noticed you use this one particular part of a Tala or whatever, or a Raga and you, you clipped off this chunk and mm-hmm. I think maybe, I mean, maybe you're not at the point in your studies with him where he's like, you do understand the part you clipped out. Right. And you're going to be like, no, what? And you're like, well, that's the reference to all of these gods or whatever. Like, and like something yeah. super important that you may not right. know. And then you'd be like, Oh, okay. Maybe I'll put that back in and cut out the chunk. That wasn't so important, you know? Right. Yeah. Who knows? But, um, totally. I think it's for me as a, as just for me as a white person playing pan right now, like I'm very curious about like, what's the patient zero? Like what, where did this start? What, what are the initial intentions of this art form and what, what were they doing? And so I know at least what platform I'm sort of jumping off of and going in a different direction. Um, yeah, totally. But anyway, Chrissy, this has been really fun. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And my policy on on the podcast is that the door is always open. So if there's another, something else comes up, don't hesitate to reach out. I'd love to have you back on and, um, you know, go from there. And I'm curious, is there anything for like, if, if folks want to check out your work and see what you're doing, like, where can they find you? Where can they find you? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a website. It's uh, chrissybergmark.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, mostly those two. Um, and then my trio is Sprig of That. Sprig um, of That? Sprig of That, okay. yep. And we're at sprigofthat.com, also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, and we're actually releasing an album April 2nd. And we're doing like one tune every single Friday. Whoa. And we're doing actually podcast episodes with those tunes. Nice, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we commissioned uh, eight different composers around like the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Um, oh, and then we're performing all their pieces and releasing that April 2nd. So, Where are you performing yeah. them? Are you doing them like remotely and streaming them? Well, or? Sorry, I shouldn't say we're performing them. We were going to perform them. And then, you know, when everything shut down, we turned it into a recording project. And so that's the album that's being released. Who are the, who are the seven composers? Um, there are eight composers Basic, and they're um, Kashimana Ahua. Uh, Adam Conrad Ferguson, Zach Baltich, uh, Yijan Aryaman. Um, uh, I should pull up the list. Let me pull up the Sorry, list. Sorry, <laughs> I, I hate when people do this to me too because I always forget like four people and then. Yeah, no, it's okay. Later. It's okay. Sorry about pull that. Pull it up. No, 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 I can pull it up. It's good to list them. Well, be sure to send me the send me the link to that because I'd love to love to check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Asuka Kakatani. Uh, Let's see, Michelle Kinney and Erica Malpass and Tarek Abdelkader. I think that's everybody. Awesome. That sounds... That's everybody. That sounds like eight completely different pieces to me. And, you know, that's awesome. That's the that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely been a blast to, like, put all of that into the voice of the, the trio. It's been really fun. Well, so. I, I have one final question about Minnesota. Um, yeah. That's where you're at, right? Yes. Is The Bachelor Farmer still open? Oh my gosh. I don't know. Honestly, it's been so long since I've like thought about a restaurant besides <laughs> like my go-to takeout. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, which I'm like, literally three doors down from like one of my favorite pizza places and one of the best places in the Twin Cities, Pizza Luce. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's still open. My wife and I, that's our favorite restaurant in the world. Oh my gosh, really? I had one of... I haven't... I, embarrassingly, I haven't even been yet, and I've heard so much about it. It's not cheap. Um, it's, you know, it's not like we go there. I mean, I, I live in Connecticut. I don't go there on a, on the regular. But it's like if we go to Minnesota, yeah. I put aside like, yeah, this is going to cost seven hundred bucks, but we're going to do a tasting menu, like where the oh chef gosh. is just brings you out a sampling of everything they make, yeah. and I'm going to sit there for four hours. And there's going to be there, this woman was a sommelier, but she was like a tobacco sommelier. She was a whiskey sommelier, a wine, and so she was just like, "Oh, with this, you might want to try this particular smoky whiskey." And then like, and it was just like four hours later, I just walked out of that place being like, "I, I, I don't care how much it costs. Like, I don't, I don't regret this. It was so that anyway." Sounds like a beautiful experience. <laughs> if you get a chance to go there, absolutely. Um, do it you, you won't okay. regret it so okay. hey chrissy sorry i mean sorry to end on that weird uh, sort of inside baseball talk about <laughs> minnesota but um but it's important to me food is important to me um stay yes. stay safe and healthy and um it was lovely chatting with you and i hope we can do it again soon yeah it was wonderful chatting with you too it's such an honor to be on your podcast so well the feelings mutual so, so stay healthy and we'll talk soon all right thanks you bye. too bye bye 
Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com a bunch of his shirts they're amazing very stylish uh, beautiful beautifully made check them out mango chow clothing.com okay hope you're well talk to you soon